Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life. This is a follow-up to episode 198 on Plato's Parmenides. We wanted to spend a little time hitting the second half of the dialogue, since we didn't get to do that during the discussion proper. This is Mark Linsenmeyer and... Seth Paskin. We didn't even get to hear you on Parmenides proper, so this is our little chance. It's a little ambiguous in the way that it is written up in the dialogue, what the relationship between the one, capital O, and the form of one. In other words, countability, right? So clearly anything that explicitly says anything you can count. So are you the one? (laughs) Well, you participate in the form of the one in that you are singular. You are one among many people and we can count you. So that is what we're talking about here. But it seems like we're also talking about, Parmenides says, hey, let's try this exercise on my thesis, the one. So there's just kind of an assumption. I don't think it's explained that the form of individuality, of oneness, and the one, why those would be the same thing. Is this relating specifically to the dialogue, or are you just asking the question generally about Parmenides from the conversation you had? How did you understand it, what this second half is about? My reading of it is that the first half of the dialogue, Plato is genuinely using the figure of Parmenides to level a bunch of critiques against the theory of forms, critiques that he's taking seriously. And then the second half of the dialogue, the first time I read it in preparation for the conversation, I thought it was basically a masterful rhetorical exercise that's meant to be a reductio ad absurdum following up on part one, the theory of forms. But when I went back and read a little more literature, and when I went back and looked at it, it's really, it mirrors the structure of the way of truth in Parmenides' poem, and it's intended to actually show the reductio ad absurdum of the notion of the one. I'm of two minds right now, but in the second half of the dialogue, he goes through a whole bunch of mental gymnastics. Let's see, give listeners an example so that the other is not the same either with the one or with being, certainly not. And therefore, whether we take being and the other or being and the one or the one and the other, in every such case, we take two things which may rightly be called both. How so? In this way, you may speak of being? Yes. And also of one? Yes. Now then, have we spoken of either of them? Yes. Well, when I speak of being and one, I speak of them both? Certainly. And if I speak of being and the other or of one and the other, in any such case, do I not speak of both? Yes. And must not that which is correctly called both also be two? Undoubtedly. And of two things, how can either by any possibility not be one? It cannot. Then if the individuals of the pair are together two, they must be severally one, clearly. And if each of them is one, then by the addition of any one to the pair, the whole becomes three. Yes. And three are odd and two are even? Of course. And if there are two, there must also be twice. And if there are three, there must also be thrice. That is, if twice one makes two, then thrice one three, certainly. And it goes on and on and on. He's basically saying, when you talk about the one, it's essentially impossible to talk about the one with any sense of predication or any kind of positive attribution, because it seems as though you're introducing the notion of an other that is separate from the one or something that's a part of the one that could somehow be construed as being separate from it or only one part of it. So ultimately, by the end of the dialogue, he gets to the fact that the one cannot have being because you can't have two separate things and say the one has being. The one and being have to be the same. It can't have come into existence because that would mean that At some point, it was not. And he talks about continuity in time and in space, right? You know, that it's a series of arguments to point out that it's impossible to talk about the one 
or to attribute anything or say anything positive about the one in some respect leads to absurdity. It feels like this is Plato using the figure of Parmenides to kind of show off rhetoric or rhetorical skills. The passage that you read, which is the same passage that I read in part at the end of the discussion proper, illustrates very much, in fact, I'm looking at the Jawa translation here, and it doesn't capitalize the one, although it calls it the one. So I don't know if that is enough to say either way what the ontological status of the one is supposed to be here. But the fact that he is clearly taking it, one doesn't just mean unity, and the one does not exist in such a way as to be one. For if it were in particular being, it would already be. But if the argument is to be trusted, one neither is nor is one. So using one as an adjective there means this definitely has something to do with the number that we're familiar with. In other words, the form of, well, that's just taken for granted. Anytime you're using an adjective, there's going to be a form for it. Do you agree that that's the way he's treating it through here, even though I don't think he uses the word form in the second half? I think so, yes. There's a reason why this is part of the same dialogue as the discussion, the first where, you know, we spent a lot of time in the episode talking about the difficulty with universals, the difficulties with forms. And I thought a lot of these critiques were pretty devastating. So the idea is how can you talk about a particular thing participating in this abstract universal? That's what with the previous thing is. When you look at the extension of the second part of the dialogue, it's pointing out the difficulty of using attribution, in other words, talking about the unity, the one, the it, whatever, talking about it in terms using the language of the forms, which is to say attributing properties to it or talking about it in terms of number, extension, part versus whole. And so it's almost as if he's pointing out the absurdity feels to me like early negative dialectics or something, right? Where it's like, anytime you try to say something, it's, could you imagine a stone that was too heavy for God to lift, right? Or a, a book that was too long for him to read. And it feels like instead of saying it negatively, it's kind of like, if you have a conversation where you try to make positive statements about the character of the unity, you will end up in absurdity. Now, whether that's a devastating critique of the idea of this unity, or if it's just a point that the language of predication doesn't make sense when used in this context or always leads to contradiction. I guess the question would be, could we make the same argument and use something other than the one? We could with God, right? But could we do it with anything else, like the earth, right? Probably not. I think that you're supposed to be able to do this with any of the forms and you're going to run into similar difficulties. If we said, like, the good, we use these same arguments in the good. It doesn't seem like, if you're worried about, can you say the good is, let's just say the large, because the good, you know, maybe the good is equivalent to the one, but, like, the large is actually used in here. So the form okay, of the large, the large, you can't do exactly the same steps that you just outlined, because it wouldn't follow, like, can the large be? Well, but if the large is then being is separate than largeness. But there's no problem with that. It's really only on the Parmenidean view of the one, where the one has to be everything, that you run into this particular conundrum. Right. So maybe there'd be similar problems with other forms, but not this one in particular. I didn't see him using the one as a placeholder for the concept of form and saying, you could do this with any form, you know, beauty or... This is what I take to be 
sort of paradigmatic of what he's doing here. If one is, number must also be. And what he means here is, if there is a thing, then there has to be one thing. In other words, there has to be a concept of number of this one thing, right? And he says it must. But if there is number, there must also be many and infinite multiplicity of being, for number is infinite in multiplicity and partakes also of being. Am I not right? Right? Certainly. And if all number participates in being, every part of number will also participate. Yes. So let's pause there. Seems a little convoluted to me, but if there is a thing, if there is one, if one is, then there must also be numbers. Specifically, there must be the form of the number one, (laughs) I guess, right? But if there's the number one, there's also got to be the number two, there's got to be three, four, five, and so on to infinity. And if those things exist, they have some form of being. They participate in some way in being as numerical forms. Then you get back to the question of, okay, wait a second then. So if the one is everything, if the one is unity, it can't just be the number one. It has to be, it has to have number two, number three, number four. And it can't just, those just can't be parts of it. It has to encompass them all together, in which case it becomes a multitude. <laughs> and then you're caught in your trap again where the one becomes many and the many are one, which is not possible. Well, this is why I wonder if he's not just pulling a fast one and switching between, I wonder if the one, capital O, the Permenidean thesis, has to be equivalent to countability. In other words, individuality, the number one. So if you really are serious about the way of truth saying that all is one, then you're not saying all is a unity which is therefore contrasted to other things, and that's why you would count them. Like, imagine that everything is one thing. Well, then you can also imagine that you've duplicated that one thing, and there are two of them, and you've duplicated. I mean, Parmenides doesn't actually say anything specifically like that. This is just Plato's analysis of the concept that whenever you're talking about unity, you're talking about a whole, and that has to be something that is countable, just conceptually, that a singularity implies a plurality, implies the whole number system. But couldn't you say that the whole that is the one, that's fine. If you're talking about one apple, yeah, I mean, then that assumes that even if there are no other apples in the room, it's still a thing. It is a countable thing. You could count it with other things. But if there really is only the whole universe, you know, I think this is why Kant would say number just doesn't apply to the thing in itself. Because you don't want to say, oh, the thing itself. Isn't that a single thing? Like, no, number just doesn't apply to it. And if you hadn't looked at the episode title, that was a preview. The full discussion is an hour long, and you can get it by becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com or a $5 Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife. If you're really interested in getting down to the nitty-gritty of this dialogue and were sucked in by that much of it, I encourage you to go show your support and get this and the many other bonus recordings that we have posted for those folks. Thanks. Thanks.